Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is a transformative time for black America. Our income is at an all-time high, and the opportunity for economic empowerment is unprecedented. It's not just about dreaming anymore. It's about turning those dreams into reality by creating blueprints for generational wealth. Prudential has a remarkable history of supporting communities and institutions that have been overlooked for far too long. For instance, they've pledged a staggering $1 billion to programs, partners, and initiatives focused on historically excluded communities. Build your financial blueprint today at prudential.com blueprints. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for us. From the ultimate girl bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girl Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at Walgreens. Nice day. I went to day school, I went to night school too. This is the intro to one of the Weedian House sessions that I reached out into Washington. It is called the National Coalition of Homelessness. I was one of the moderators at one of the, uh, the Institute conferences. And I am sharing with the rest of the community just what I had uh, sat in on and how I moderated. So this may be broken down in a couple of uh, uh, segments, a couple of episodes. Uh, fortunately, it's not video, it's auditory. So just lean in and enjoy and listen in to some of the topics that were had there. Thank you all for listening in. This is my intro to the episode of William Howe's uh, National Coalition for Homelessness. That was the title um, that I was one of the moderators for in Washington, D.C. Thank you all for listening and hopefully we'll meet in the light of understanding. that takes place. And a lot of times, 
Our white colleagues simply are not comfortable because they fear that, that confrontation. And yes, it will illuminate who you are as an individual, right? You can't hide when you're doing real racial equity work. Period. There's nothing more to say. <laughs> historically black colleges and minority serving institutions in this country. With amazing students and alumni bases, almost in every state of this country. So any excuse of not being able to find black talent or minority talent is a false statement. There are over, there are nine historically black fraternities and sororities in this country with over a million members. There are black student unions, Hispanic student unions at some of the best universities in this, in this country. So if you can't find talent, you are not looking in the right places. Secondly, Dr. Alex Kellen, I wanted to ask you, I know the answer to this already, but you talked about the number of folks that you have, that you have on staff that are just as involved, may have experienced homelessness, as recent as maybe a few months, how do you get over that hurdle? Or some people think it's too hard to hire people who may not be in housing, they may not be ready for work. How did you get over that? Thank you. Well, I guess we have to remember there's a lot of housing people that aren't ready for work. <laughs> When you really believe in something, you make it happen. Yeah. Um, we've been sued by housed people. We've been sued by recently unhoused people. We've been sued by everybody. So it's a risk you take when you employ. I think the way you can avoid problems is to be sincere. It does help me that a lot of my executive leadership are people of color. And when they're not people of color, they're people with deep, painful, lived experience of trauma. So when people start acting up at work or struggling, and maybe because our system is racist, they don't just immediately say, you're fired, or let's write them up. They usually will say, let's have coffee. Yeah. Or, yes. And the other thing they do is um, they negotiate and they advocate with the hiring manager not to go there. They're bringing up the person's story, context, and that makes a big difference. And so um, Keith Anion is my VP of administration, and he and I together changed the face of St. Joseph Center. If you don't know him, know him. And I, I think about, um, because it doesn't have to be a person of color, folks. I've gone into my orientations. We, I do a CO breakfast, and sometimes I've gone in there and everybody looked like my auntie. And I said, Keith, now you can't hire everybody that looks like me, right? I mean, you have a diverse uh, pool that you work with. 
He said, don't worry, I got the next group. They'll look like my auntie, and the next one will look like Norma's aunties. I said, well, I got a room full of aunties right now, and I'm loving it. <laughs> so I just want you to know we can all do it. to uh, thank you for being so transparent in your statement, saying that you recognize that you are the executive director of a racist organization. That took a lot of, took a lot of courage. And even though you are in the position that you're in now, it still takes a lot of courage because that's how entrenched racism is within our organizational structures. Now, with that being said, you mentioned a couple of other things, and one of those is that black people, we spend a lot of time worrying about we're going to be fired, we're going to be let go. We're, if, if there are cuts, we're going to be the first ones to be let go. If we express ourselves and we are truly authentic and organic at work, we're going to be let go. Um, I, and I know that, that that statement is so real and it's so true. I spent a lot of time uh, feeling that way myself, and even sitting on a board, just sitting on a board, um, expressing myself and, and speaking out against things that I know are just crazy and do not add up. I'm like, no, one plus one is not nine. I don't know where you're going with that, but I'm, I'm not for that. I always would say, um, I'm so sorry. I, I actually would apologize later on and I say, but that is truly the way that I felt. But then I felt, I would feel as if I was going to be kicked off the board because I was being so genuine and authentic in my feelings. Another thing that we deal with is when we have people that look like us who are still, I say, suffering from um, vestiges of slavery, mm -hmm. the overseers. So where I don't have to always feel that I'm uh, under the radar or under the gun from a white person, but rather I feel that it has been my experience more often than I care to remember that as a black person that, I'm, that has gotten to a position of perceived power and is like the overseer and, and um, looks down because they want, they got that position, they got it, and they want to keep white people happy. So in order to keep white people happy, they have to keep black people in line. So what do you say to that? You know, I appreciate it. You made me think about one other thing, uh, to philanthropy or leadership. Don't just pick one, I, I think I said this, but I wanna go one more. Don't just pick one little nice black person. But also, if you find yourself in the room going, who should we invite? As a white person, why do you get to pick who gets the opportunity? How about you go to your black staff and say, who do you think would be good to participate? Stop making all those decisions because, again, you hit us against each other, getting back to your point, and we know that there's one seat. Look, my daughter, she's 15, and she's like, oh, um, I'll say, Susie, you know, I don't know if she's going to do it. And I said, look, you focus on that one little black girl. That's not your competition. This whole school is your competition. I said, and you have already seen that the white folks are pitting you two against each other. I said, you hug her, you love her, and you both work together. And you become a team. So to your point, it's really hard when black people work against each other. And, and then sometimes our white colleagues just sit back and watch us tear each other up. All I can say is, we all have to learn where the biases are. We've all internalized some self-hatred, and we have to stop it. Mm -hmm. And just like we're asking our white colleagues to do their inventory, we have to do our inventory as well. Thank you.
much, Dr. Adams. Thank you, Ms. Sherry. Thank you, Ms. Brown. Um, I was looking around the room uh, intentionally. I did that because when we have conversations like this, for me, it's, you know, I see people who look like me, but it's important to see people in this room having these type of conversations who do not look at me, look like me, but are in leadership uh, uh, positions. And so this is more of a comment, um, or I just want to share this a brief experience with you all. Um, it's not a question. And so, and I want to make sure, can everybody hear her? Yeah. Okay, make sure you're close to the mic. So okay. I want to make sure they hear you. And so Angel started this um, conversation about showing up and being your true, authentic self, right? And Dr. Adams expanding on that. But so oftentimes in agencies, black people, and I'm going to share my own experience with you, we're not able to show up and be our true, authentic self. And being authentic simply means being real, being the person that God intended us to be, correct? And so I'm a little nervous right now because when I think about this experience, it really hurt me. And when I left this experience, I thought about, what do I go home and tell my children? And so I was at an agency where I was brought in, I was actually recruited, um, and I was recruited because the CEO said, we need you for this position. We know that you can do this position. We need you to come in and fix, to build, to strategize, and mobilize these departments. So when I came to this agency, I was one of the few people of color in this leadership position. Actually, when I first got there, someone came to my office, walked past my office, and came back and said, they put a sister in this position? And so we laughed about that, right? So as I continued to move into this position, as soon as I got here, I mean not here, I'm sorry, at this agency, my team mostly was white. They were not reflective of me, which was fine, but it also was different for me. And so as I began to move into this position, my um, CEO, uh, the person who reported to him was my boss, but we worked closely together. I kept hearing, you're doing a wonderful job, you're doing a great job, you're the person for this position, and this is why we brought you here. Well, soon after that, my boss asked to meet with me. During this meeting, my boss said, Latanya, you're doing a great job, but I'm getting, you know, this person said this, and this person said that. Now, mind you, it's the same person, right? The same person who does not look like me, who happens to be a white male. And my boss said to me, although you're doing a great job, we're going to ask you to step back and let him be the boss mm. until we move and change buildings. And I was so taken aback by that, and I said, but I'm the boss. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you are. You are the boss. But just let him leave right now, because he's feeling a little uncomfortable. And when we move, you'll be back in position. I left that office, and when I got in my car, the tears just came down my face, because I didn't know how to respond to that. And for one of the first times in my life, racism was right there in my face. A woman who had struggled, who had sacrificed, who had went to school. And when I tell you I show up, I show up. I show confidence, I show believing in what it is that I do because I know what my gifts are. I show being loving and I show being supportive and it was not appreciated. And then I had a meeting with my CEO afterwards. And she said to me, that she follows me, not me, and said to me, the time you appreciate everything you do, but I know what the problem is. You're too strong 
for him. How can I respond to that? What I was being told over and over, you cannot show up and be who God intended you to be. So when we are moving in these spaces and we are working with people who are striving to show up, people who may not look like us, when we are in positions of power and leadership, we have to be mindful of our community. We have to be mindful of how we interact and engage with one another. Because soon after that, I was promoted and I did a great job. And <laughs> housing program we opened in November where we have 17 units of short-term uh, housing for women in scattered site apartments and then 42 units of permanent supportive housing at Diane's house and this is our first program also where we uh, welcomed family so a woman with one child thank you <laughs> And then Capital Vista is another permanent supportive housing program where we have 21 units of permanent supportive housing in a mixed building. So that means there are individuals that are paying market rent, but we provide 24, 21 units of PSH and intensive case management services in that program. So we're very proud of that one too. So I would like to take you back. <laughs> to March 2020, where our worlds were abruptly changed. I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting in the conference room on March 16th uh, with the other members of the executive team, and we were trying to decide how we were going to manage through this pandemic. And members of the team were like, oh, Kenyatta, don't get excited. In three weeks, we're going to be back to work. <laughs> So we're in our third year, <laughs> and it feels like 20. Uh, and the start of the pandemic gave us a perfect opportunity to pivot our services for women. Don't want to be in a pandemic, but it allowed us to see that the way we thought we were providing services, the efficiencies that we thought we were putting in place, actually were not really what the women needed we thought. Uh, and so we took time to really outline where we could make changes during this time. And so I would like to walk you through that. We recognized very quickly that we had to pivot and telecase management. 
I think most of us were doing traditional case management, make an appointment, client comes to your office, or you do a home visit and you're inspecting the unit. We quickly realized that was not going to work because we had to change our scheduling. We had our case managers working three days at home and two days in the office. And so we decided that we had to move towards telecase management. But really, what is telecase management? We were operating a vocational center. And in that vocational center, the women would come and meet with the manager and sit down and do job search or discuss what their goals were and create a plan and maybe build out a resume and make a referral to one of the work workforce development organizations. But who's coming into the office in the middle of the pandemic? No one, so we had to pivot. Our wellness center, where we were partnering with Unity Healthcare to be able to provide women wellness exams. We had dentists come in. We were providing services such as Reiki massage and yoga. We were doing uh, flower arrangement classes, mental health classes, jewelry making, um, self-esteem classes, AA classes. Couldn't do that any longer. And then our greenhouse program, which is very loosely based on an outpatient recovery program, no one's coming in. However, we noticed that the use of substances had increased because we had taken away the activities that were so vital to the women because we had to close our day program in an effort to keep women and staff safe. So we saw an increase in substance use. We saw an increase in depression. But how are we going to address those issues in the middle of a pandemic? So these are not actual women. These are actual touches. So the numbers that you see are the touches based on the services that we provided. So you see in fiscal year 2019, we had 2,398 touches of either providing daily activities, basic needs, case management, uh, focus on career or financial services, substance use services, classes or activities, benefit assistance such as SSI, uh, mental health services, health care, uh, COVID is on there because we put that on there in fiscal year 2020, uh, meals served or provided, uh, crisis intervention and emergency services. Fiscal year 2019, 2,398 touches. When we pivoted in fiscal year 2020, you see that we had 20,691 touches. And my agency serves over 2,500 women a year in the programs that I just outlined for you in the previous slide. So where we pivoted, telecase management. Pulled my team together, we had a work group meeting. At this time, I was the chief program officer. I had not been promoted to CEO as of yet, and so, So um, I had 140 staff members under my leadership as the chief program officer. And so we developed a work group to decide what does telecase management look like? Uh, it's not telehealth because we are not licensed medical professionals, but it is case management. And so we wanted to create something that allowed our program managers to continue um, constant communication with 
the program managers and the clients, as well as the frontline staff in all of our programs. And so we worked with our outsourced IT developers to create a case management booking app. And that booking app would allow us to have that app on all of our work-issued computers and our work-issued cell phones, and a case manager could enter in client's information and wherever you were, whether you were working remotely at home or whether you were in the office, you were able to see what your team member had entered in. So when you came on to shift, you knew that this was a critical situation and you could go meet with that young lady, whether it was in her unit or whether it was in the shelter. So we created that case management uh, booking app. We're very proud of that app. We went through all that work. <laughs> And then our government partners said, oh, we're going to release the restrictions on case management because in our permit-supportive housing programs, you have to have six touches a month. And those touches had to be physical, in-person touches, whether you were in the office or you visited the client's home. And so they said, now, providers, you can do case management via text, via email, telephone calls, or video conferences. So we said, well, thank you, because we've created this booking app, so that just now enhances the services that we're able to provide. And so we began using Zoom as a platform for case management services, and we uh, downloaded Duo on all of our telephones, our cell phones. And then what we also took advantage of was the fact that we had never done a technology assessment of our programs. So my director of operations and one of my directors of housing went to each location and looked to see how strong our Wi-Fi signals are. Because you have this app and you have the platform of Zoom, but if a young lady can't connect because the signal is low, it's pointless. So we went to every program and we did that. And then we found in two of our permanent supportive housing programs, we actually had enough space to build computer labs for the women to be able to access uh, connections with their team members. So we did that as well. We worked with our IT vendor and created uh, computer labs in two of our programs. So the women would be able to go downstairs, get on a computer, and have a Zoom meeting with their case manager. This is Leo Henderson from Winnie House. That was what you just listened to is one of the conference uh, speeches. Are we serving unaccompanied women well? How we can do better? And this was today, Tuesday on the 26th from 9.15 to 10.30 in the Jefferson East uh, side of the uh, hotel. And I'm going to be in and out going to other co conferences and you will hear a couple snippets of different topics that we have here. The cheating, the lying, the stealing You know I'm getting a definite feeling There's something funny going on Good morning, everyone. Hopefully, everyone can hear me. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Theo Henderson, and I have lived experience of being displaced and being, uh, which I consider unhoused. And a quick thing I wanted to, under to state before we get uh, started, I wanted to thank everyone for coming, but the reason why I use the term 
unhoused is because it's consists of personal agency. In my experience that many people in many communities uh, rebel against that term because of the agency that I wanted to use as unhoused. So I wanted to be clear that if you are comfortable with homeless, I'm okay with that, but also be comfortable with other people wanting to be called other things than being homeless, unhoused, displaced, unsheltered for walls, and not fly into a rage with that. Now that we've got that out the way, I wanted to introduce to the other guests here in the audience is Mr. Eric Tars and Mr. Jerry Hall. Um, Jerry Hall is going to be stepping in for Jones is going to be stepping in for Ms. Eric Lee and Eric Samuels. And did I miss anyone else? Um, so I'm going to introduce quickly first Mr. Eric Tars. Mr. Tars serves as the National Homelessness Law Center's legal director leading its human and civil rights programs and managing its cutting edge litigation, strategic policy, advocacy, and outreach and training initiatives at the international, national, and local levels. Eric helped spearhead the launch of the Housing Not Handcuffs campaign, has served as counsel of record for its multiple precedent setting cases, including Martin versus Boise, that's an excellent, uh, brief there in the Ninth Circuit and is frequently quoted in national and local media, including NPR, AP, New York Times, Washington Post, and Vice News. Before coming to the Law Center, Eric was a fellow with Global Rights U.S. Racial Discrimination Program and consulted with Columbia University's Law School's Human Rights Institute and the U.S. Human Rights Network, where he currently serves as the Vice Chair of the Network Board Eric received his Juris Doctorate, Georgetown University's Law Center, and his Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from Haverford College. And I will let Jerry give a little his brief on, because he doesn't have this, because he's stepping in so graciously. Good to each of you. I am uh, filling in. We, we've had two um, uh, last minute cancellations, um, and uh, I, I want to. Uh, be sure to point you to some of the material that would have been covered uh, by them. I'm Jerry Jones. I'm the National Field Director for the National Alliance to End Homelessness and the former Executive Director of the National Coalition for the Homeless. So without further ado, I'm going to start with the title of this. The title of this seminar is Confronting and Reversing the Criminalization of Homelessness. So we will start with Eric has some um, information that he would like to impart and then I'll talk to Jerry and I'll bring in some insiders and I'll round out the conversation. So Eric, would you please? Thank you. Not only for public urination, but for indecent exposure, a sex crime. 
So now Amber has not only the immediate penalties of uh, jail time and fines and fees she can't pay, but she has to register as a sex offender for the rest of her life, making it almost impossible for her to find housing. That doesn't help her out of homelessness, and it doesn't help St. Petersburg solve either its homelessness or its public urination problem. Unfortunately, this isn't just Amber's story. It's our nation's story. Our 2019 survey of 187 cities across the country found that almost every one of them has some form of law criminalizing homelessness and that these laws are on the rise. Close to three quarters prohibit camping in public, a 91% increase since 2006. More than half restrict sleeping in public, a 50% increase. A third have citywide bans on loitering, doubling since 2006. And now close to two-thirds have laws restricting living in vehicles up more than 200% since 2006. And because of racial disparities and homelessness and enforcement patterns, the criminalization of homelessness isn't just a homelessness problem, it's a justice problem and a racial justice problem. A recent report found that black adults are up to 9.7 times more likely to receive citations for low-level non-traffic offenses as white adults, and Latinx adults are up to 5.8 times more likely. But most jurisdictions don't collect data on the housing status of individuals charged, so in many cases, while we can look at overall racial trends, we don't necessarily see the intersections with homelessness and how that can multiply the effects of race. In order to have accountability, we need to know when, where, and how this is happening. So the first need is for a national requirement for data collection on housing status for tickets, arrests, use of force, etc. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act would have required this for the first time in use of force data collection, but ideally we need it for all encounters with law enforcement. That said, um, as Heather McGee reminds us and some of us, these policies that disproportionately harm BIPOC communities hurt us all. As you can see here from the Lawyers Committee survey of San Diego enforcement, while BIPOC individuals are disproportionately cited, in absolute terms, white people experiencing homelessness still make up the majority of citations for many of these ordinances criminalizing homelessness. But without national data, we can't know the cost of this fall. And because studies show that criminalization of homelessness costs two to three times as much as simply provided housing, continuing to invest these resources into a law enforcement approach to homelessness rather than a housing and services approach actually harms the whole community by draining the resources we need to solve underlying housing issues that make people homeless in the first place. Because the consequences of these choices to criminalize rather than provide housing and services can be literally life or death. Today, we have to say the name of Kurt Anders Reinhold, one of the too many black men killed unnecessarily by police in recent years because Orange County sent out law enforcement officers with sidearms, predisposed to look at homeless persons as criminals, rather than social workers with access to housing and services to deal with a person in crisis who just needed help. Because homeless people experiencing homelessness live their entire lives exposed to public view and police scrutiny, and these laws criminalizing homelessness can literally make their very existence in public space a crime. Loitering is simply standing when the police decide you don't have a right to be standing there. When race and homelessness intersect, it makes black, indigenous, and people of color extremely vulnerable to police interaction and potentially to police violence. And unfortunately, too often there's no accountability for these abuses. Just a few months ago, the LADA, 
declined to press charges against the officers responsible for this killing. Just as they did not charge those involved in the killing of Charlie Kunan several years earlier. So while the law finds individual police officers justified, we also need systems of accountability to hold the system as a whole accountable for their deaths. Because the system should never have sent those officers out in the first place. But it's not just these encounters that result in death that are a problem. Today, we end up with more than half of the people in some jails there because of homeless-related offenses, and law enforcement spending tens of thousands of hours addressing homelessness rather than focusing on actual public safety. Most criminalization occurs at the municipal level, but just last year we released our first state-level survey, and even we were surprised to find out uh, that there were state statutes criminalizing homelessness in almost every state. Some are archaic Victorian era statutes against panhandling. Some are Jim Crow era vagrancy statutes designed to make black people without jobs criminals so they could be passed through the 13th Amendment loophole back into enslavement. But all are out of touch with modern constitutional law, public health, and public safety standards. And there's a new danger of uh, states passing new bills in this way. People might have heard about some template legislation being pushed by a group known as the Cicero Institute. The Cicero Institute's template has four primary elements, and not all of these elements appear in every bill, but they are, uh, um, they've been amended as they've been introduced. But they include a diversion of all federal and state funding for homeless services not specifically allocated to permanent housing by statute to short-term legal encampments, safe parking lots, and emergency shelters with six-month time limits on stays, mandatory treatment, testing, uh, service obligations, subject to immediate removal for failure to comply, and a grant of immunity and liability to operators of the encampments for all but the most grossly negligent conduct, a statewide anti-camping ban with penalties of about $5,000 in a month in jail, and removal of all homeless assistance and public safety funding to any jurisdiction that refuses to enforce the ban, lowering of due process protections for persons experiencing homelessness, involuntarily committed to state psychiatric institutions, as well as the threat of jail or $5,000 in fines for non-compliance with outpatient treatment, and creation of homeless outreach teams funded by homelessness dollars, which require law enforcement participation to force persons experiencing homelessness into those state-run encampments under the threat of enforcement of the handling cancer ban. These uh, laws were introduced in six states uh, this past year, and they passed in three of them. Uh, the bill that passed in Tennessee didn't have some of the other elements uh, in it, but shockingly, in a state where fair market rent uh, for even studios doubled the minimum wage, they had made it illegal to camp on any public property in the state with the penalty of being up to a year in prison, and Tennessee permanent disenfranchisement. The Cicero Institute was founded by a conservative venture capitalist named Joe Lonsdale with investments in private prisons and who mocks racial and gender equity by making movies of himself playing fake video games, taking down enemies promoting equity. In truly dystopian fashion, he's funneling his billions of profits into promoting legislation that will literally fill his private prisons with people made homelessness, made homeless due to the incredible equity inequities in this country. 
We need all of you out there educating your state officials on the importance of evidence-based approaches pending homelessness. Beyond uh, regular criminalization, there's also been a recent trend of proposals at the state level that will make it easier to involuntarily commit individuals with mental health or addiction problems who are also experiencing homelessness. As noted, this is being pushed through the Cicero, Institute, Cicero Institute's template legislation in conservative states, but scarily, a similar proposal has also emerged in California as being heavily pushed by the governor and seems likely to pass the legislature. And law enforcement is explicitly empowered to make referrals into these systems. And obviously, this has a disparate impact and is likely to result in the segregation of persons with mental disabilities, but given the racialized history of the misuse of involuntary commitment and overdiagnosis of BIPOC individuals with schizophrenia, we have similar concerns with this form of institutionalization as we do with laws that make it easier to incarcerate other homeless persons. So again, we urge folks to point out that the evidence that involuntary treatments don't actually work and that this is basically another form of an imprisonment in institutions. The good news is that across the country, courts are striking down these laws at high rates and the cost of losing litigation to the other costs that criminalization imposes on communities. Since 2015, 100% of the challenges to panhandle bans have led to the overturning or repeal of the ordinance. The same goes for 60% of challenges to camping ordinances and three-quarters of loitering bans and two-thirds of food sharing bans. And I want to highlight this language from our markers to Boise decision here. Uh, because it's so powerful, not just from the legal side, but from the perspective of changing the false narrative of personal choice. We've all heard this idea that cities offer ample shelter and services, but some people are just service resistant. No. It is that these communities have been resistant to providing housing and services that people actually need. And Martin calls this out. If communities put half the energy and resources into improving outreach and services that they put into coming up with new ways of criminalizing homelessness and enforcing them, we can all end homelessness and all its negative impacts tomorrow. And that's why we need all of you out there to be our eyes and ears in the field and stepping up to serve as organizational plaintiffs and expert witnesses when these cases do make it to litigation. And it's not just homeless individuals who are at risk. Does this look like a safe situation for law enforcement? No, it puts them at more risk as well. And that's why the DOJ's top office dedicated an entire newsletter to talking about alternatives to criminalization so they could get police and prosecutors out of that role and why dozens of current and former law enforcement officials have endorsed our housing on campus campaign. There's other help out there as well. In 2021, for the first time, DOJ included the treatment of homeless persons explicitly in their civil rights investigation of the city of Phoenix. We were able to connect the DOJ investigators with local lawyers and service providers who brought them out to the streets with them to actually witness uh, sweeps in progress, um, and we we're looking forward to seeing their findings and consent decree. As I'm sure you all know, since 2015, HUD's uh, continuing the care funding application has told communities that prevention and reduction of criminalization of homelessness is up to work. Upward of the two points on their application, and that those points will matter. So, our recommendation is to earn those points by advocating against criminalization in partnership with those who are directly impacted. The real alternative to all these policies is making sure that people aren't getting criminalized because they aren't on the streets in the first place, because they're in adequate housing. 
And that's why it's great that President Biden came in with a message that the president should be recognized as a basic human right to which all Americans are entitled. Using the language of housing as a human right puts us in line with international advocates and helps prevent abuses in other areas of civil and human rights. In the context of human rights, the U.S. is currently scheduled for its periodic review by the U.N. Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, or CERD, in August. And in its last review of the U.S., the committee recognized the disparate impact of criminalization of homelessness on BIPOC communities and made specific recommendations to abolish the practice language that it doesn't take lightly in the context of uh, the abolition of slavery, and instead take human rights approaches. We'll be sharing the committee's new recommendations when they come out in August, and folks should use them too as part of their advocacy to show how far out of step with international norms that we are. Again, here's our top recommendations, and I'm more than happy to be in touch with you. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, one of the things I wanted to point out today, I would be remiss to talk, not to speak on it, is right now in Los Angeles, California, the city council is voting to expand 4118. And for people that do not know that are not in Los Angeles, 4118 makes it a, a crime for unhoused people to sit, sleep, and lie. They've already have created another legislation policy against unhoused people repairing their bikes. Um, I noticed people were gasping at uh, being considered a sex offender if you're using the bathroom on the streets. But consider for a moment that there are unhoused families that are living out on the streets. They're near schools. So 4118 impacts those families, the parents as well. And the lack of bathroom access, as you know, if you have children, is going to create a groundswell of antipathy. And uh, parents, housed parents, have weaponized the safety of children against the unhoused uh, basically human, basic human rights. So I want you to consider right now that city council is voting to criminalize houselessness everywhere. You can't sleep in your car, it's 8502 in Los Angeles, you can't repair your bike, and you can't be seen anywhere sitting, sleeping, and lying. And heaven forbid, because we have no bathroom access there, they're locking the bathrooms in certain places that you're going to have to use the restroom in the best way you can, and if you're caught, then you're going to be facing the same fate. But I'm going to turn the conversation over to Jerry. Jerry has some few, a few notes that he wants to impart with us as well. Thank you, Theo. And good to be with all of you. Um, third day of the conference as, as a staff member of the Alliance. Uh, I've been working on this conference with my colleagues for months now, and it's good to see it come to fruition. I hope uh, folks have taken away valuable uh, learnings and met new people, and, and it's been a good experience. Um, and, and if you've wondered how these workshops come together, it, it's very much a process of individual staff members taking the assignment of different topics. This, uh, this workshop was one that I helped coordinate, and like I think other staff members of the Alliance, I didn't pick the people I admire most on that particular topic. So I've been following Me the Unhoused podcast, I think Peter will mention uh, shortly. Um, since probably it began, I remember um, signing up when I, as soon as I heard about it. Anyone working in the sector of homelessness that isn't yet subscribing to Me the Unhoused should. And I have, I have long admired uh, Eric Tars and the, the now uh, renamed the National Homelessness Law Center. 
Uh, so that was the natural pick. The two people who aren't with us, um, Erica Lee works for Venice Community Housing in Los Angeles. I wanted her insight on this especially because Venice Community Housing is a provider, a frontline organization, not a large nonprofit, that prioritizes human rights and is fighting the criminalization of homelessness. And any provider organization could learn a lot from uh, their work, and, um, and we need to have solidarity together for serving uh, people in need to, to prioritize this issue just as much as we're prioritizing some of the direct services. And uh, Eric Samuelson, who um, Samuels rather, uh, runs a system, he's a system leader, runs a coalition in, in Texas, and so his perspective, the perspective of the coalitions that are working on this issue, are examples as well. I, I will be brief. Um, I, I wanted to make sure that you know their PowerPoints are in the app. And so uh, take some time after this event to, uh, to look at what they would have shared in the session. And I also just wanted to maybe reflect on where we're at um, as a sector and, and increasingly as a nation on this issue of homelessness um, and its connection to the criminalization of people experiencing it. Um, I, uh, you know, I've been working on, on homelessness since the late 1980s, and I feel like it was the first wave of how criminalization was playing out, which was really the results of an insidious evil that has its roots in all of us, which is the desire to make difficult problems disappear. And the reality is that people seeing other people out on the streets, it's, it's unsettling. It's, uh, very disconcerting, and uh, partly because I think it calls into question our own vulnerabilities, partly because we know that it's wrong for people to be living out of doors, and that there might in fact be something very wrong with the society where that's become prevalent. So we don't want to deal with that, and we would wish the problem to just simply go away. And I think that aspect of the reaction to homelessness has been with us for a long time. It's like Mayor Ed Koch in New York during the 80s, sort of notorious for being uh, tough on street homelessness. He was a conservative. Uh, Andy Young, civil rights hero, uh, generally progressive guy, mayor of Atlanta. Uh, I can remember in the late 80s he was proposing that anyone who was on the streets needs to have a special ID, uh, which uh, at the time was compared to the past laws under the apartheid regime in South Africa. So he was as tough on street homelessness as, as Ed Koch was. And so there's, there's been this trend of just trying to make people disappear. I think that that's, continues to this day. There's also, I, I feel, a second wave of criminalization that's connected to the real estate market in urban areas. It's gotten a lot more expensive. And so in a way that probably didn't exist decades ago, you have very, very wealthy people living alongside very, very poor people. And so there's a reaction to that, and law enforcement, and uh, business improvement districts, and the laws that, uh, that Theo was mentioning in Los Angeles. There's a more recent trend. I'll, I'll end on this point, because I don't really have a conclusion for you or a recommendation for what we should do, but we need to be aware of the increasing politi politicalization of our issue of homelessness in the, in the national debate. Uh, 
which I think reached a different level back in 2019 when President Trump began criticizing Eric Garcetti and Governor Newsom in California for what he saw as the squalor on the streets of blue cities and blue states. And he proposed in 2019 that folks from Skid Row be taken to uh, federal lands outside the city and put in the camps. Did anyone remember this? It was a proposal. There were high-level uh, officials, delegations that came to Los Angeles to kind of negotiate how that might work with uh, the Garcetti staff. And um, it was, while serious, it kind of fell apart, I think partly because of the pandemic. So this was 2019 into 2020. The negotiations were going on, and then the debate moved on to other issues. Um, so we see this idea of sanctioned encampments, the idea of removing people experiencing homelessness forcibly into uh, tent cities or camps. Um, this, is, this is a central idea in the Cicero Institute's model legislation that's being proposed in that Eric uh, spoke about in the question. You, you have all, we've all been in a conference for three days now. Just by a show of hands, who is aware that yesterday President Trump made his first speech in Washington since uh, the election, in which he uh, homelessness was a central part of this discussion. He, uh, he talked about homelessness and crime and returned to this idea of camps, of tents in remote areas that people who are homeless uh, in urban areas would then be relocated there. And the soundbite to the speech was, uh, America's a cesspool of crime and homelessness. I don't think this was Trump being bombastic or unscripted. Um, this is the outline of a political program. And it's not accidental that what he said yesterday is entirely consistent with what he was proposing as president in 2019. Los Angeles. It's not accidental that it echoes what the Cicero Institute is pushing and has gotten enacted in a couple of places. Um, and we can assume, I think, that this idea of messaging that people who are experiencing homelessness need to be relocated to camps is something they've tested in the polls of their base. And it just has to be pointed out that there is something historically familiar about this. There are other examples of, um, of people who are marginalized, uh, people who are um, politically unpopular being relocated in camps. And I'm not making false equivalences here, but I'm saying that this resonates with, um, with a certain constituency that I think is being spoken to. So the dilemma for us is that this debate over criminalization is shifting into a political realm that I don't think we're ready for. And I'm not here to propose a response to it in terms of what we should do. We are mostly uh, caseworkers, we're clinicians, we're, um, we're people who have experienced homelessness and been to hell and back and are now feeling. We're, we're, we're folks who are mostly focused on uh, the direct services and looking at the programs, trying to make them better, data-informed, uh, models that might show more promise. We're not political professionals. And yet our issue um, is unmistakably 
unmistakably being drawn into a political vortex that I'm not sure where it's going to go, but um, I am confident that we're going to all have to be working a lot more and, and having a, uh, something to say about the criminalization of homelessness based on the, uh, the President's remarks yesterday. And I encourage everyone, if you haven't seen it yet, um, it's definitely something um, you've got to, it, it, it'll be in the news, so it's not going to be hard to find. So with that, I'll, uh, I'm looking forward to this, the discussion. I also, I also want to add one quick thing that Jerry makes an excellent point on. Let's consider for a moment of the, t uh, the past coming to the present and the unhoused community is being shuttled somewhere else and all of the, uh, the, the body of people here, where will we be in order to be able to help people being displaced out into the deserts? How would those services, what would those services really look like? Because I know in Los Angeles, they're talking about putting them near the airport or the desert. And how will those services be in real time of helpful to get people out of houselessness if they're being shuttled into similarly eerily um, prehistoric camps or detention centers or however they're going to gloss over that. Um, so I'm going to open up the discussion with a quick question about it is that where do you see yourself in the fight? Because this is a war on the poverty, a war on the poor, and how can you be more vocal in order to stop this, this crisis that's from happening? Okay, um, uh, I just want to follow up on, on this as well um, uh, with a, a couple of quick points. I think uh, there's a, um, a real danger uh, obviously, Trump is kind of at the extreme of using this harmful, hateful rhetoric. Um, and you know, Jerry was afraid of making false equivalences. Um, I'm going to go there at least a little bit because, you know, what I saw during his administration was first, he decided, I'm going to try and put kids in cages and see if that's cool. And it was cool for a long time with a lot of people and until it kind of got a lot of press. And so after seeing it, what he could do to people who were undocumented, who weren't citizens, who was the next most vulnerable group who we could test you know, policies on that you could see if you could lock them up, displace them, put them into these camps where they have to be under penalty because they don't have anywhere else to go. So if it's a crime to be homeless anywhere, then the only place they can be is in, is in those encampments. And so, um, you know, there's that whole, like, first they came for the communists, but I didn't object because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, but they didn't, I didn't object because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me. So I, I, I see this. I saw it definitely when it proposed it in 2019, and I see it again now. Like, this, this is part of, <laughs> this is where we come into the war against fascism in our country. So, yeah, this is where, where we need to speak up and make sure that other people are speaking up um, as well. Um, and then the other point I'd make is that while Trump is using this rhetoric, um, kind of hateful rhetoric, one of the points he makes um, uh, in his speech is he says, for the good of everyone, the homeless need to go to shelters, the mentally ill need to go to institutions, 
and the unhoused drug addicts need to go to rehab and, if appropriate, jail. The best way, the only way to address homelessness is to open up large parcels of land in the outer reaches of the city, bring medical professionals, build permanent bathrooms and other facilities, and create thousands of high-quality tents. <laughs> they are dressing this up in a language of we care about people experiencing homelessness. This is for their good, own good. This is for the good of people who can't, who haven't chosen, who can't choose to do any better. And this is where we as um, uh, homeless service providers and homeless advocates have, uh, have left ourselves open um, because we have been busy focusing on what we know are the best evidence-based uh, harm-reducing strategies um, that's you know permanent housing. Um, and we haven't been given the resources to put out the adequate amounts of permanent housing, affordable housing that we need. And so homelessness has continued to grow. And now it's at this crisis point of unsheltered homelessness where people are suffering on the streets and we are being cast as people who don't care about that suffering because we're so focused on the end solutions. And it's really hard for me as an advocate to advocate for a interim solution when I know that's going to be, in a world of scarce resources, that's going to take away from the permanent resources. And so by focusing and saying, we have a solution for this, for in, an interim solution where we can put people for their own good while, you know, but they don't say while we work on the permanent solutions, they are actually trying to take away funding from the permanent solutions while they do this. And that's the real danger, is that this isn't harm re reducing, they're using the language of harm reduction, they're using, you know, the fact that some legalized encampments have been a form of harm reduction for people on the streets, um, but that's not what they're setting up. They're explicitly uh, removing liability from the camp operators in these Cicero bills for anything but the most grossly negligent conduct. So that means, you know, they're not trying to make these welcoming places. They're, you know, they're setting them up to be horrible places that they, you know, that the camp operators can't even get sued for. So, but they are using this language of harm reduction um, when they are actually going to be inducing harm. And I, and I think that's, that's a real danger that we, as a field, need to be able to confront and figure out how we are are going to address what are the, the interim solutions that are actually uh, acceptable, that are harm-reducing, that are in line with common form principles, that can make it like immediately better for everybody, not just the house people. And then, you know, how do we keep the momentum going for the the permanent I want to add a couple of things too, and one of the things that I have in Los Angeles have had people, activists, or um, the mayor in the city have demonized when we say because we understand what's going on, the criminal, uh, the carceral effects of, let's say, Project Room Key or, or Tiny Sheds, they created such a, a horrible environment. And when we speak out about it, they're saying that we don't want to help unhoused people, we want to keep them on the streets. But we know what's going on and we're speaking out against the constitutionality because we know what their end game is. Missing from that conversation is a growing elderly population. 
in many conservative conversations, they always say that you pick up yourself out of your bootstrap, you got out of substances, you worked your hard, and you saved your taxes. But the reality is the elderly population, the oldest person that I've interviewed, is 90 years old. You can't say that he's got to get a job, he needs to get off of drugs, because he's at the advancing stage of life, his rent is expensive, medical expenses are high, they can, he's making a gamble, and his gamble is trying to stay alive, so he's on the street. And the conversation when we would tell them that this is not just a box where there are people like they like to believe that don't want help, this is not true. The youngest person that I've interviewed that's been displaced is 10 years old, that their family lives out on the street. The other, a mother with two infant children are living on the street. It's not that you know they don't want to get help, they can't afford the places that are becoming unsustainable. But when you have, um, when we speak about these carceral solutions like Project Room Key or Pride, uh, uh, Tiny Sheds and telling them they're deliberately making these places uninhabitable, not putting keys or making it so un untenable, it is not because activists don't want them to get help, it's that they are deliberately trying to make it such a horrible situation that they will just throw up their hands, oh fine, we'll just do a permanent encampment out into the desert. And many, unfortunately, people that craft uh, on listen to them and push that narrative as well. Jerry, what's your insight on this? I, well, I think the, um, the, the, the most troubling part of this is if homelessness becomes a partisan football, a talking point, uh, that's, that's not really about solutions to poverty. This isn't why it's being um, being pulled into the, the debate, but rather as a, uh, a way to signal a, allegiance to one side or the other. And it becomes very polarized, as we've seen so many other issues in American politics um, become. It then becomes so much harder for us to get the resources we need, the consensus that, that is essential for us to make progress on the scarcity of affordable housing and the services for homelessness. Uh, many, many uh, in the room will, uh, will remember a time when homelessness was very bipartisan. Uh, and and uh, we have uh, attendees at this conference from all over the country, and there are mayors, there are county executives, and others who are Republicans who are very committed to the same things we're trying to do. Stuart B. McKinney was a Republican congressman from Connecticut, we remember. Um, Susan Baker was a founder of the National Alliance to End Homelessness, wife of James Baker III. So this, this is, you know, what most of these workshops uh, you've attended over the last three years, uh, three years, three, uh, three days has been about programs and strategies and, you know, what works. Um, there's, there's always going to be, you know, mean-spiritedness, there's going to be NIMBYs, there's going to be folks who just don't care about poor people in this this includes you know, some Republicans who, from a fiscal standpoint, um, oppose the uh, priorities that we're advancing because they just don't want to spend money on poor people. But, um, but again, I feel like there's, uh, there's the beginning of a metastasization of this highly partisan, polarized rhetoric that is then going to have ripple effects in blue cities like Los Angeles, where it, it will then be um, you know, not as abnormal to say that you can draw a map under 4118D where literally a person without housing cannot exist. 
you, know, you can't be in the city limits. A lot of places you're from, I bet that's true even now. Um, you know, if, if someone pitches a tent, that, you know, they're moved along. So, um, so I, I guess my, uh, my basic takeaway is this is something we, we need to figure out fast because I wasn't expecting, you know, we had the, there's a lot going on in Washington. I hope you all also have had the chance to kind of enjoy uh, just being in the center of, of American public governance and, and what's going on here. The big story this summer has mostly been around January 6th and uh, sort of um, those, those types of issues. Why the former president would pick homelessness of all the things he would want to talk about is linking homelessness and crime as his first major address coming back to town is, is a red flag to say the least and we need to get ready. I want to add on, there is a bipartisan um, communication between Republican and Progressive in demonizing the House. It's still there. It's just it's going to a different pendulum slip. And it is not an accident. <laughs> I really want to emphasize that. Because with 4118, it's not in a Republican's place. These are Democrats that are openly uh, listening to the siren songs. And that's why that's the bipartisan reaching across the aisle conversation that is going to be a universal thing. So when we, when we say the labels of black women in the past of being addressing that house, that's wonderful, but it's still bipartisan is there. And the bipartisan thing is this tiny sheds, the 4118 by majority of progressive democratic people are voting to excuse or to demonize people of color and people that are displaced out in Los Angeles. So yes, uh, Tennessee and some other red states are doing it, but the progressives are as well. And we need to be coming to a conversational point, which brings up another question, is like there, uh, the media, the importance of having to attack the community through the media. Joe Rogan has made it acceptable to go up and start shooting on house people. I spoke about that. So it has become a conversational, easy talking point for anybody to talk about that say about our house. So how can we push back from the social media standpoint or from our own resources to really get the stories out here that we, we are not going to stand for fascism? Yeah, I, I, um, you know, I think the real danger that Trump brought into this and that has been perpetuated by uh, Tucker Carlson and Fox News, if folks have seen some of those segments, is that they have now linked housing first um, with critical race theory and other, you know, talking points that they have that they don't actually understand, um, but that are just slogans, and it's made housing first toxic, even to Republicans who used to support it, um, who know <laughs> that it is both the, like, you know, best policy and the fiscally conservative thing to do. Um, but now, now see, being seen to support that gives them, you know, gives their, their primary opponents a, a talk, another talking point um, that, that, you know, they can out right flank them with. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I, I think if there ever was, uh, you know, bipartisan consensus it, there, it, at the federal level around, um, around housing first and supporting it, uh, that's certainly much more difficult, if not impossible now. And, and as Theo said, at the local level, all politics has always been local, and uh, there's been bipartisan pushes for criminalization 
um, <laughs> for, for a long time. Um, but on, on, the, on the communications point, is Marisol in here still? Um, Marisol Bellow from the, the Housing Narrative Lab has come out with some new uh, research uh, with some interesting ways of uh, saying uh, uh, that like, you can use a talking point that kind of says, there's some people who want us to think about this simply, um, and to say that the only thing we can do is kind of lock up people experiencing uh, who are on the streets. But that's not our value as Americans, as you know, residents of the city or state. Um, we know better. And, and that kind of rhetorical shift can help to break people out of, let's look for the, the quick and easy solution um, because you don't want to be associated as somebody who thinks simply. Um, uh, they've got some other uh, talking points that we, we did a webinar with them uh, a couple weeks ago um, and I can try and get that uh, information to people um, but Housing Narrative Lab you can uh, look them up online um, and uh, there's other I think the other really important thing is the work that uh, Mark Horvath over there with Invisible People is doing um, to be just getting the narrative out, you know, showing what a sweep looks like, talking to the impacted individuals and really humanizing it, and, like not letting people look away um, and let this, you know, the, what criminalization actually looks like in practice go on in, in our collective names. Um, I think having uh, you know podcasts like Theo's as well, like you know, to, to hear uh, the actual stories um, and uh, the experiences of people um, as we're doing our policy advocacy, that needs to to be kind of front and center. These these uh, testimonies of people who who have experienced this. So, Jerry, you want to? Well, I will bring up a two different tack. I want also to communicate. I know I want to have, ask a question, and then we'll allow, if it's if time for me, some of the uh, the audience members to have some questions. But the, my final question is this: If we have such a groundswell of a talent here, how as we collectively can really unbreak the mantle? Because there is a a shift. And I, as a person of color, I'm a black man, and I've been unhoused and criminalized as a black man. Um, and I wanted to point out there, there is, um, before George Floyd, and I want to say that George Floyd wasn't the first black person. The first black person that had got that kind of treatment was a black unhoused man. And many people in the community do not even know who this black man is. They know George Floyd because it was on camera. And the, the incident, the black and house man that was uh, that made the set fate before him a few years before was on camera, and his name was Muhammad Abdul Muyahin. This black and house man had had the nerve to go to the bathroom with a service dog, and someone called. And this is why, when you criminalize unhoused people's basic needs and basic support services, they called the police because he brought a service dog in to go to the bathroom. And because it all of the police interaction, he had a breakdown, and then they did what they did to him. Those police officers are free. And it's really important to talk to what many, and I'm just gonna just say this, this might ruffle some feathers. There are too many 
white advocates thinking that police officers should be included in the conversation. And it is wrong. And it is dangerous. And when you link side when you link side of it, and thinking that it could be mellowed out or it should be ignored, it, it does something. And, it, it, and I have to say this too, as advocates, to understand, no one in here, many, many do not know this unhoused black man's name, but many of those people had pushed for this advocacy of cops. For example, in Santa Monica, a unhoused uh, a family had listened to police officers tell to the horror to their horror because they didn't know that this parent family was unhoused, that if they seen an unhoused encampment to call the police. And you're talking about listening to police, listen to, when you hear in schools, listen to the teacher, listen to the administrator. Now you have unhoused students in there, over 17,000 in Los Angeles School District. What do you think that that's going to do? And many of them are people of color. What do you think that you just brought out into that? So I want you to ponder that, but also if you guys have any further insight on that, I'm welcome to hear, hear that as well. So. I, I think those points also um, require acknowledging that the homeless sector um, often tries to just sidestep those, those uh, terrible events that um, we know happen when uh, law enforcement is, is uh, trying to police a situation that doesn't require police, first of all, that there is very little value added uh, that uh, officers bring when the, when the situation is, is not one of you know, imminent danger, but rather a person in crisis and, and in need of help that they're not getting. Um, that the the provider sector um, has, I think, in many cases, and I don't want to diminish those that have stood up and, and prioritized this issue, but in many cases, um, let's just be real, it's, you know, we get public funding. We have to work with city halls. We have to uh, think about our relationship with the mayor. And so stepping out on an issue like criminalization is difficult. Um, for the five years before I, came to the National Alliance, I coordinated a coalition of providers in Los Angeles. And um, many of whom were, such as Venice Community Housing, were very active on this issue, but most were not. And it was um, in some ways understandable that if you're a large multi-million organization with responsibilities for um, serving, housing, lots of folks, that you don't want to be reckless with your, your relationships with City Hall. <laughs> It's also, you know, it would then be quietly acknowledged, but it, you know, it makes it really tough when we're trying to match people with the housing we, we've already um, secured for them if, if you're sweeping encampments and we don't know where people are because they're, they've been run off. Um, we, we had, a, that coalition in Los Angeles uh, was uh, offered the, the chance to meet with the chief of police of Los Angeles uh, quarterly. We had a meeting with, with Garcetti and, and we were talking to him about this stuff. He said, well, you should meet regularly with our, our police chief. And it was just very difficult to figure out where that conversation was going to go because it was clear that this constituency, unlike other homeless advocacy groups in Los Angeles that were much more direct in their critique and, and holding police accountable for criminalization in, in that city, the providers were like, you know, is this really what we want to spend our political capital on when we um, 
when we've got uh, so many other things we need City Hall to do. Um, I, as the coordinator of that coalition, am complicit in that. I didn't, I didn't then put my foot down and say, well, we've got to, no, we're going to, this is going to be the top issue or the top one, three, five issues. Um, so I, I say all of that in a kind of rambling way. This is tough for, for organizations, nonprofit organizations, to be too bold about. I feel like the issues now come to us. I don't think, I think, I don't think this is, criminalization of homelessness is no longer something that um, organizations working on the issue of homelessness have the luxury to dodge much longer. And if you... We were having an excellent conversation a few days ago about how to show up with your white privilege. This is one of those examples. <laughs> if you need to show up and start, if you have these uh, big these organizations and things like that, you guys band together, put the feet to the fire instead of, you know, I know it's difficult, but they imagine the people that are people of color, they have to navigate what they are in financial services. They lose their lives. We get to go, many of us that are in these privileged positions get to go home. But Muhammad Muyahim will never go home. George Floyd will never go home, but there's many unhoused black or people of color that would never be able to go home, and we are still, the ball is returning. We have to put the feet to the fire. It is, we're at this red critical mass, we're in red alert conditions. It's, it's important, it's, an, it's our responsibility. Yeah, and I will uh, add that uh, one of the reasons that we advocated with HUD to put that question into the COC NOFA is exactly to give service providers the political cover to say, look, you know, our federal funding, and you know, we need to show that we are earning our two points on this application by doing education about the harms of criminalization in our community. So, you know, sorry, Mr. Mayor, you know, like this, if you want us to get these federal dollars, you know, we have to, to tell the story that what you know, what's being proposed here in this community, isn't uh, isn't best practice. Is going to be harmful, et cetera. So there's, you know, to the extent it helps in those difficult conversations, there's you know, you can use that uh, those uh, incentives as part of as you know as cover, I guess, for for needing to take those uh, critical positions for you know when you are getting both city or uh, county and federal funding. Um, the other thing I'll say is, and then I appreciate uh, Jerry's kind of owning this, you know, our organization, um, as recently as our report uh, on uh, criminalization back in 2015, looked at uh, some of the homeless outreach teams that were being put together by law enforcement as a positive development, as, you know, this is a way of reducing harm. Um, we don't have that position anymore. Um, uh, and, and now are kind of at the point where we acknowledge that kind of law enforcement doesn't need to be involved in, in, in this. You know, it, we need social workers who are trained uh, in de-escalation and, you know, harm reduction, trauma-informed principles backed with the actual resources of housing and you know appropriate services that are going to meet the needs of the people out there building relationships over the long term through you know exactly you know the finding lists and all the things that we already know actually work that's what we need we don't need 
um, hot teams. We don't need homeless courts. Um, you know, those are all diversions of resources that actually uh, create more harm in the long term. And so you've got um, kind of, uh, I think, uh, Away Home America has this useful framework of, you know, you've got reform, the transformative edge of uh, reform, and then the transformational state. And we need to really focus on that transformational state, the state where law enforcement isn't involved and there are efforts, I mean, even the, the Biden administration is, you know, more on the reform side, um, kind of promoting uh, law enforcement involvement in very um, various forms um, in homeless outreach and saying, you know, that they need to be uh, partners at the table because they are currently involved. And I, and I understand that sentiment, um, but, but it, it, you know, yeah, it's, it's problematic because it, it permits the longer term harm to, to continue going on. So we really need to help vision that transformed world where you know, law enforcement isn't part of the conversation anymore. I'm gonna leave it to the unhoused, um, my unhoused friend, Alma, who, said, who suffers from schizophrenia. She had an episode and she was trying to come down. Someone called the police. She said he pulled his gun on her. Put, her, put his knee in his, her back. She's have to deal with now trying to calm her paranoia down and worry about her life. The point of it is bringing police into this kind of conversation, no matter how they were involved in it, because they inserted themselves in it to take our funding. Los Angeles has over $3.2 billion that has been used to the police and $1 billion for unhoused services. So let you do the math. They've inculcated themselves at every conversation. Even with houselessness services, they're getting a cut from the, our houselessness side of the budget. So we have got to get decolonized the cop out of right head and to understand that they don't solve anything but violence and death in these instances. Because why are you going to bring a gun and a stick to someone that's already paranoid or going through a crisis? You know that they're going to be defensive. You know that they're going to act out in, in, in ways that you're trained to put people down. So it's a, it's a non-brain, not non-issue, non if you don't, you know, non-brainer, I should say, no-brainer, to, you know that's going to cause death and desolation. So I'm going to just open this up for people to have something to say. Please show up. And back there was first, I think. Sure. We have a mic so everyone can hear. So if you want to show, please um, make your way to the mic there. Oh, Go ahead, David. Thank you. Um, I, I've got two questions. I guess I'm going to ask the inflammatory one first. Um, um, to, to what extent do we believe that these criminalization policies are, are not just racial policies because they have a disparate impact uh, upon uh, on black folks, but they're actually intentionally racist policies? Uh, because we all know that black people are three times more likely to be homeless than, than whites. Um, in, in Miami, as a matter of fact, about 60% Blacks make about 60% of the homeless population. We all know that the war against crime, war against drugs, and in a, in a sense, is nothing more than dog whistles mm -hmm. to go after the stereotype of the inherently dangerous black male. Uh, and we all know that um, Trump, to use Mr. Jones as an example here, is an infamous race baker. Okay, he, he, he 
he's always on camp life and can use um, his base um, to, to mobilize his base. So I, I'm seeing here that these criminalization policies are more than just spatially neutral policies that have a disparate impact upon a protected class, which is sort of like the legal definition here. But these are, but my question is, to what extent do we believe that these are intentionally racist, not just racial, but racist policies? The same reason why we have uh, the rise in showing black men uh, doing the anti-Asian hate. Look at the videos, they have to do the most egregious instances. But even though we know statistically the most crime against Asian people were white people. So it is deliberate. So it's, it's there for you if you want to see it. And I'll, I'll just add, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that like many of the statutes that are still used to criminalize homelessness today are Jim Crow era statutes that were literally put there so that the very existence of somebody in a public space could be deemed a crime if that, was, that person wasn't desirable. Um, and, uh, and then that person could be put into prison, passed through the 13th Amendment loophole back into involuntary servitude. Um, and so, you know, it, the, the history is there and the present. Um, I'll read another line from Trump's speech. Uh, you know, uh, what does he say? We need to take back our streets and public spaces from the homeless, drug addicted, and deranged. Um, you know, we, the homeless encampments are taking over the dangerously deranged, roam our streets with impunity. This is the same, you know, uh, language that he was using about when he came down the escalator and was talking about the rapists and murderers from Mexico. Like this, it, it's all, it is part of the same uh, dog whistle rhetoric. Um, and, you know, and I think, uh, and the fact that the Cicero Institute and, and Joe Lonsdale, like, I mean, they are explicitly attacking adva uh, advancing critical race theory, uh, racial equity, um, as part of their, their push for more criminalization, um, you know, they're not going to say it explicitly, of course, but um, yeah, it's, it is, it's right there. They see the connection, um, and we need to, too. Central Park Five, is there any indication? Do you remember what his statements was? He put full-page ads out on these young teenagers that were innocent, calling for the death penalty, calling them animals. So yes, it's pretty obvious. Shouldn't that be our 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 public or our uh, talking point, though? These laws are racist. But and, unfortunately, and, yeah. and, and pointing out that anybody who supports these is in fact racist in these situations. I mean, that's again the same uh, along the same principle that you mentioned before about talking about you know simple people come up with simple solutions and this. You know, these are simple solutions, and so, yeah, they're simple. You know, read the word, you know, ignorant or whatever you want to put in there, you know, quotes or whatever. But, I mean, it's the same thing. People don't want to be, people don't want to be called racist. Exactly. They want to be thought of as racist. <laughs> as a black man, I'm just tell you straight out. What my experience is, you're just saying that you just, if you do support these things and be racist, I've got so much backlash for people that were close to me or, or friends or you think. To be called back, it's like you open up people of color to a ground of violence and harassment by the very same people that they thought that was in their corner. So you can say that, but I would tell people of color, you know, be, you choose your battles because 
you're going to you're going to go through hell trying to explain why these things are racist because they will tell you they're good people they help people of color they help them across the street and everything out and so you're going to spend an enormous amount of labor trying to explain to them why these things are racist and our larger impact so yes it is racist but that's an extra burden for people of color to have to say Exactly. Right. Exactly. And get upset. Yeah. So it will. It will not. It's good. I have had poor success with that. But again, for the white privilege people in the room, yeah, it's well, okay for us to say that. Yeah. And to I mean, point it out, you yeah. are not the white privilege. You're, but you're right. But we just can't. I mean, yes. We, we're going to. We, you'll be. You'll be hounded forever. <laughs> And it's 
really important that we do it right, and it's, it's all database. So it's worth looking at my question. One is, should we be looking at lawsuits, or should we be looking at it on bills, legislative bills, um, which are more effective than most states, since we have to eliminate laws in Delaware, not fight against them. And my second question is, is criminalized homelessness, we all keep talking about it's unconstitutional. This is going to go the way Roe versus Wade with our new Supreme Court. Are we going to lose our guy? Yeah. Um, so uh, to follow up on, on your question as well, uh, and partially to answer yours, it, um, there, there is no uh, kind of counter-institute to the Cicero Institute, but uh, many of the national organizations are right now working on like kind of a collective, how do we collectively come together? How does the Alliance use its networks with service providers? The National Coalition use its networks with grassroots organizers? The Law Center use its networks with attorneys to help work on this from all angles and come up with a collective strategy. So we, we are, we are the, the change we're, we're looking for. Um, uh, and uh, on that front, uh, you know, in terms of lawsuits, lawsuits, um, I think, help. I think part of the reason that uh, the effort in Los Angeles uh, under the Trump administration stopped when it did was because the Ninth Circuit, or, or that was exactly when the Supreme Court said it wasn't going to take on the Martin case. Mm -hmm. uh, and they said, saw that the Ninth Circuit ruling was going to stand there. Um, but, uh, you know, we have to see this as uh, lawsuits can only get us so far. You know, all that Martin actually says is you can't criminally punish somebody if you don't give them another place to go. Like, that doesn't get us to housing as a human right. It doesn't get us. So we need the affirmative solutions. We need the legislative solutions. It would be great if we had legislative solutions that also actively prevented criminalization, homeless bills of rights, right to rest act, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, um, so we, we definitely need both at the same time. And the uh, litigation can be seen as part of a, a broader strategy, at the same as with the civil rights movement, where um, the courts, you know, the NAACP was working uh, hand in hand with uh, you know the organizing on the ground, and so that's that movement lawyering is, is how we should be viewing this. We're we're going to take one more last question, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I got my note to, to get you guys <laughs> moving along. Thank you. Thanks. I'll make it quick. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in some of the efforts that we've made to get rid of criminalizing laws ends up being turned against us in kind of um, interim solutions added in. So for example, like one of the things I've seen is people having the right to housing efforts, but then those being shifted or changed in a way to make it more right to shelter, which is actually um, kind of continuing the process and a big loophole that adds in later all of this. So do you have any advice on like how to counter that and the laws that actually I would like to say, I think also not only to the right to shelter, but also trying to get other art, because no, we have to give the devil is due. They are organized and allowed to dis, discombobulate. And they utilize people that don't understand the full the end game. Like I, I've seen with the Project Room Key situation, they'll trot out people who think it's just wonderful, 
but they're not understanding that they're being shunted out on the street at a certain time. So it was a temporary solution with like tiny sheds. They thought that they had their own room, then they throw in that they're gonna put in people that are not their partners or may have COVID and all of these things to understand that this is not the solutions that they are offering. They're, this is a game that they're playing for people to pit activists against each other and to say, no, we want housing. We don't want any more of these damn shelters. We don't want any more of these, these temporary solutions because we know what the game is. And it's very hard to get um, some of, again, this goes into the privilege, the, the, uh, some of the liberal privilege uh, individuals to get the understanding of the end game, particularly for people of color, uh, um, to tell this is not the move. But that's for a conversation for another day. This is Theo Henderson from Unhoused News. Our top story, an unhoused man, uh, actually four unhoused people in the river and the valley were attacked with a pellet gun and stabbed. And incidentally, on sad news, sadder news, an unhoused gentleman by the name of Jonathan has unalived himself. We wish to remember and uplift his name and his trauma and his story. For the last two weeks, on Witty and House has covered and have featured uh, there was Nisi week in Little Tokyo and it is a very cruel irony that this is a remembrance of the detention camp and the erasure attempts of the Japanese community over 79 years ago and in addition right and juxtaposed by 4118 for the unhoused black and brown communities that live in Little Tokyo by this very same descendants and some of the advocates they state that this is not the same um, their erasure attempts or their carceral solutions in uh, removing unhoused people because they are using the stereotypes that they are criminals, they have trash, they're using a bathroom. And if you go into the community, there are aggressive attempts of housed security officers attacking unhoused people for recycling um, and also unhoused people trying to survive and eat. And there is very little empathy. Fortunately, we have J-Town Action Solidarity that has comes every Saturday to provide mutual aid, a place of safe space, and a way of seeing the unhoused community. Unfortunately, members of the Japanese housed community look on it with very hostility, disdain, and, and, and aggression, with the exception of a Zay restaurant as well. A Zay restaurant has also implemented a um, cold water policy for unhoused people enduring the heat wave, uh, which is very commendable. And unfortunately, our housed uh, uh, community members in Little Tokyo do not see unhoused people as human beings. Los Angeles has a new bike repair ordinance against the unhoused community. Uh, what is prohibited under the ordinance, which has not taken effect yet, uh, is people will be prohibited from assembling, disassembling, selling or offering to sell, distributing, offering to distribute or storing on pu public pike, public property, five or more, more bicycle parts, a bicycle frame without gear or brake cables, two or more bicycles with missing bicycle parts or three or more bicycles. 
it will take effect on August 8th, 2022. Who was behind the ordinance was council member Joe Buscaino and February 22, city council approved it on June 21 with all council members voting in favor except Mike Bonin, Marquise Dawson, Nithya Raman, and Curran Price. In happier unhoused news, activists Ms. Carla and Mr. Paisley were happily wed recently and they are currently on their honeymoon. We wished him uh, a happy union and also take care and enjoy your time and we thank you for your continued activism uh, dealing with the carceral solutions and carceral environment that the unhoused are facing. On August 9, 2022, City Hall was faced with activists protesting against the 4118 uh, Holocaust procedure rollout that they were trying to impose across the city. And we, the protesters and activists, have been featured several weeks going and speaking out against it. If you want to see the live uh, live streams, I strongly encourage that you go and link in to see uh, it on Theo Henderson's Weedy and House Live. In other news, in South Carolina, men brutally beat unhoused camp as others cheered on and video. David Ho Norris, Seth Norris, Joshua Norris, Logan Holmes, and Tristan Ramsey Ramney were the men that were attacking unhoused people. These people were housed. The video showed men brutally attacking people at unhoused encampments while others stood by cheering and filming. And this is Unhoused News. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 